0: This is The Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo.
1: Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to The Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueroa, and this is the 78th episode of the program. Today is January 20th, and we have a brand new president being sworn in as I film this episode. But... We're not going to talk about that because we don't like Donald Trump, so let's go ahead and get to the show. But before we get started, I want to thank several new people who decided to join the Progressive Independent Media Revolution. So today we have Akif Kutab, Sherry Eason, Gary Thompson, Brian Cartier, Daniel Smith, John Nays, and Felix Rosas. So these individuals decided to support the show either by signing up to become a member on HumanistReport.com, by signing up to be Patreon patrons, or by sending us a donation via PayPal. So if you two would like to support the show, you could visit the links down below in the description box or you could support us for free by liking and sharing our videos or whitelisting us on Adblock. You can also use our Amazon link to shop. So on today's episode, I will be talking about the DNC chair race debate and why I was disappointed in all of the candidates. I'll also talk about how the DNC is giving David Brock and billionaire donors control of the party in some ways. Tom Perez's refusal to say whether he'd ban lobbyist contributions to the DNC, the confirmation hearings of Betsy DeVos, Scott Pruitt, and Tom Price, the upcoming release of Chelsea Manning, Bernie Sanders' assertion that Republicans are actually getting nervous about the fallout from repealing the Affordable Care Act without replacing it, I'll discuss how Bernie Kratz took over the Californian Democratic Party debbie wasserman schultz's hilariously ironic comments about russia influencing the election you're gonna love this i'll talk about the unorthodox form of protest of vice president mike pence and finally the detestable plan by republicans to gut the endangered species act so all of these topics will be discussed on today's episode let's go ahead and jump right in because we've got a lot to cover enjoy the show So I wanted to give you guys a rundown of the DNC chair debate that aired on the Huffington Post. Now, overall, I went into this debate with rose-colored glasses and I was trying to look for things to be optimistic about because in the era of Trump, I know people are demoralized and I know that we need something that's going to give us hope. But unfortunately, I came away from this debate completely disappointed, uh, overwhelmingly disappointed, quite frankly. And this is because what little hope I had left in in the Democratic Party, what little enthusiasm I had about even Keith Ellison, I feel like that was all dashed because there were some things that I heard from this debate that I not only disagreed with, but I just found it outright disturbing. And there's many reasons here that I have for you. So to kind of start off, what i've said previously is that going forward the democratic party they can't change the past but what they need to do is acknowledge the elephant in the room they need to acknowledge that what the dnc did in the 2016 democratic primaries That was unethical and it was also tantamount to fraud, hence why there is a lawsuit going on against the DNC right now because of what they did to Bernie Sanders and his supporters and how they tipped the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton. And the candidates were asked what they thought the DNC did wrong in 2016 and we'll go ahead and hear them out, but I'll tell you why I was disappointed in their responses.
2: The biggest
3: mistake that the DNC made not just in the 2016 election, but in all of the elections that I can think of before that, is not having an overarching identity message that as Democrats we can be proud to stand under. I've been doing work in Idaho, and one of the things that's killing us is the brand that Democrats have, and unfortunately that brand got even more damaged this year. The biggest mistake that the DNC made, I agree with Sally, Uh, the problems that we had weren't 2016 problems. (laughs) Problems that we had were that the fact that we abandoned the 50-state
1: strategy that Howard Dean started when he was chair of the DNC. These aren't incorrect answers. Let's be clear here. These are relatively good answers, but they're not addressing the main problem And the main thing that the DNC got wrong, and this was screwing over half of the party by tipping the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton. Now, if you're wondering why these people did not address this, or if they were avoiding it, well, it's because they were asked whether or not the DNC tipped the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton during the 2016 Democratic primaries, and they just outright reject that idea.
3: Another show of hands question, who here believes that the DNC did unfairly put its thumb on the scale during the... Uh, 2016 primary?
4: That's a gotcha question. I'm not going to answer
1: Thank you. So that right there, in my opinion, was an abomination. I'm disappointed in every single person on that stage right there because that's not a gotcha question. I think that was a question that's crucial. And I'm really glad that the Huffington Post moderators asked this question. If you can't Admit that the DNC tipped the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton at a minimum during the Democratic primaries? then I don't think you're fit to be DNC chair because we want you to admit that this is what they did because going forward, I want you to be cognizant of this reality and assure us that you're also going to be a neutral arbiter. But unfortunately, you decided to reject this premise altogether when the evidence is clear. If the DNC did not tip the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton, then why is it that Debbie Wasserman Schultz was forced to resign? Did she just resign on her own accord? No, she was forced out because she was exposed as someone who rigged the primaries against Bernie Sanders. And out of all of these people, Keith Ellison probably disappointed me the most because he didn't have the courage to raise his hand. Keith. Of all people, you know that the primaries were completely unfair to Bernie Sanders. You know Debbie Wasserman Schultz rigged the primary, and the same smear tactics that they used against Bernie Sanders, well, they're using them against you to defeat you in the DNC chair race, so how could you not have the courage, Keith, to admit That the primaries were rigged. How could you betray Bernie Sanders supporters and ignore this fact that has us completely pissed off? I'm not willing to forgive or forget this. I want the party to address it. I want a DNC chair that's going to address this and apologize to us for doing what they did. And not just because I'm petty and I want an apology. I want them to acknowledge this because it's important that they are aware of this and they don't do it again. But because of their answers, I'm worried that any of these people will be just as inclined as Debbie Wasserman Schultz to rig a primary against the grassroots candidate in favor of the establishment's choice. So that was just one of many aspects of the DNC chair race that I just found downright disgraceful. Now, another crucial thing that I wanted addressed in this race is whether or not the next DNC chair would reinstate President Obama's ban on lobbyists and corporations donations to the DNC. Uh, And again, their answers were really disgusting. When lobbyists or corporations give us any money, what are they going to get from the DNC? It's not like we have
0: a vote in Congress. We can't determine any laws. If, If I do uh become dnc chair i'm not going to impose a policy on anybody we're going to have a democratic process on how we arrive at funding the democratic party
1: so hands down the worst answer came from jamie harris he said when lobbyists or corporations give us money what are they going to get from the dnc it's not like we have a vote in congress well the reason why he's saying that is not only because he's misinformed but this guy works for a lobbying firm, and not just any lobbying firm. He works for the lobbying firm of John Podesta's brother. He was a huge Hillary Clinton cheerleader. So, of course, he's going to say that. But also, to answer his question, what are they going to get from the DNC? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe it's the case that corporations and lobbyists will contribute to the DNC in hopes that they'll tip the scales in favor of the candidates that will better favor their corporate business interests. Did you not think about that? Maybe it's the case that corporations donated to the DNC because they wanted Debbie Wasserman Schultz to rig the primaries in favor of Hillary Clinton. Did you ever think about that? And furthermore, why would you want money from lobbyists and corporations the correct answer here is just to say, look, I don't want their money. We're rejecting their money on the principle alone. We don't want the money of corporations and lobbyists because we're a party of the people. We're a party of the 99%, not these rich oligarchs that continue to buy off our elections and politicians. So, You've got it completely backwards here, Jamie Harrison. You should be ashamed of yourself that you are running to be the head of a party that's supposedly a champion of the working class. Disgraceful. Now, admittedly, I was also disappointed in Keith Allison's response here, too, because I don't know if you picked up what he was putting down there, but he's wavering on his decision to uh, ban lobby's contributions to the D- D- dnc he says that he will not unilaterally impose this policy he's going to leave it up to a democratic vote within the dnc uh, that's not what I wanted to hear, Keith. The reason why progressives are uniting behind you right now and fighting for you is because we have faith in you or we're trying to have faith in you that you're going to get in there and slap the Democratic Party and throw a bucket of cold water over the heads of every member of the DNC. They need a wake-up call. If you allow them to decide whether or not they should continue to take bribes from uh, large corporations and lobbyists, of course they're going to do that. That's why they lost. They need someone who's going to get in there and take a wrecking ball to every single old establishment philosophy that they continue to champion. And you are now telling me that "Mm, maybe I'm not going to impose this ban on lobbyist contributions. I'm going to leave it up to everyone. I think we're going to come to a democratic decision." Wrong answer, Keith. Wrong answer. And I'm very disappointed in you here. Now, also, the candidates talked about the ongoing proxy war between the Hillary Clinton wing and the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. And this is another area where I was just incredibly disappointed as well. A false choice is being laid at our feet. That there's a portrayal
4: of, of this competition for chair as though it were a choice, uh, as though it were a choice between one wing of the party and another, as though it would be a defeat for some Democrats and a victory for others. That presentation is unfair to the candidates who are here. We need to transcend that, get past that, and be
1: united. Now, I am entirely dissatisfied with that answer because he says uh, it's false to assume that the outcome of this race would be a defeat for one wing of the party and a win for the other, Uh, because it would. The question is really simple here. Are you going to be the party of the working class, or are you going to continue to do the bidding of large corporations and billionaires? And by allowing Tom Perez, for example, or Jamie Harris to win, you're choosing the elites over the working class? Are you going to be a party of the 99% or the 1%? So to just stick your head in the sand here and try to pretend like this proxy war isn't going on, uh, yeah, it's going on here. And why are we fighting to just have a voice in the party when you guys should be kissing our asses right now? It's just so infuriating to me because I feel as though they're never going to get it. Now, when it comes to Tom Perez, he performed about as well as I expected.
5: Donald Trump is what we call a target rich environment. (laughs) But, you know, what we can't do is uh, go after him every time. You can't meet him tweet for tweet. I think we've got to
1: be surgical.
5: We've got to we've really got to understand also that you don't. Go to a
1: knife fight with a spoon. So, if that didn't prove to you that Tom Perez is a calculating, focus group driven, poll minded politician, I don't know what it is. Because when he said, you can't meet him tweet for tweet, he was so proud of that. Did you see it on his face? Oh, you can't meet Donald Trump tweet for tweet. He even said it twice. But it was a fail. It reminded me of this moment from Tim Kaine Do you want a your hired president in Hillary Clinton, or do you want a your fired president in Donald Trump? <laughs> And then he also quickly said something that... I think we need to decode a little bit. He said, we've got to understand that you don't go to a knife fight with a spoon. We've got to fight back. Now, this might seem like a relatively benign statement to most people, but when Democrats say this, what they're typically referring to is money in politics. So, for example, David Brock says the same thing. He says he's against money in politics. He said this in his open letter uh, that was an apology to Bernie Sanders. He said, well, you know what? I- I'm against super PACs and I would love to get out of the business of super PACs, but unfortunately, we can't unilaterally disarm when the Republicans have super PACs. So, the the same argument that Democrats have been making consistently is being made here by Tom Perez. Well, you know, if Republicans are taking money from billionaires, if they're taking money from super PACs, if Republican presidential candidates and House and Senate candidates have super PACs, then why should we disarm? Why show up to a gunfight with a spoon? And this is bullshit. It's been debunked and proven to be wrong by Bernie Sanders because he did show up to a gunfight with a spoon, and Bernie Sanders nearly won a rigged primary. He did not have a super PAC. He only accepted contributions from individual donors, the working class. He didn't take billionaire money, and he almost defeated Hillary Clinton in an unfair primary. So that line of reasoning has got to be just, it's got to be put in a box and buried deeply because it's. Bullshit. Now, there was a point in there that I found interesting. So they were asked whether or not Haim Saban should apologize to Ellison for calling him an anti-Semite.
3: Please raise your hand if you think Saban should apologize for those remarks. Would anybody like to take the
6: question? Sure. I I think it's important uh, that we realize that this is bigger than our own uh, selves. What we're fighting against with Donald Trump means that we all have to be together.
0: I just think everybody should know that Haim and I did have a phone call. I won't disclose what we talked about, but it was amicable. And uh, we're going to get together and build on our relationship. So I don't want anybody to think that that was the last word. It wasn't. And uh, I think we're on the road to recovery in that regard. So I just wanted people to know that. And I'll Wonderful. let my colleagues address. Them. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Keith is a great guy who works
3: hard each and every day for his constituents. Everybody. And so we need to, as a party, stop with all of the demonization of each other and focus on the real war right now. And that is against Donald Trump. Thank you. Thank
2: you.
0: 30 seconds. I think I may have been the only one who did not raise my hand. And that's because I think as Democrats we need to stop falling for these gotcha questions. I think when the media wants to divide us in this way, divide our funders from our potential leaders, we need to just stop biting, taking the bait. So I'm not going to take the bait. On that question of division, I'm not going to take the debate. debate on the Sanders versus the Clinton divide, and I I would look to all of my candidates up here and say, let's stop taking
1: the d- debate. Now, I was glad that the other DNC chair candidates did not use this opportunity to attack Keith Ellison, but. What was odd about this is I found myself more disappointed in Keith Ellison's response than anyone else's. He said, Saban and I had a phone call and it was amicable and we're going to get together and build on our relationship. This wasn't what I wanted to hear, Keith. You are literally admitting to us that you're taking calls from a billionaire donor and that you're trying to cultivate a relationship with a billionaire donor who previously smeared you arbitrarily, we came out and defended you from this guy who's a mega-donor. His voice is much louder than everyone else's who votes Democrat, who is a constituent of Democrats and you're taking his calls? We don't want you to get cozy with billionaires. What you should be doing, Keith Ellison, is telling him to take a hike right now because if you are saying that you're going to work on your relationship with Haim Saban, you're communicating to progressives that you're not that progressive after all. You want these cozy relationships between the Democratic Party and their billionaire funders. Not acceptable. And then we had Jimu Green. She said, we need to stop falling for these gotcha questions when the media wants to divide us this way, divide our potential leaders from our funders we just need to stop taking the bait so she probably thought that she was saying something really profound here but what she was saying was terrible she's saying that she doesn't want there to be any tension between the democratic party donors and the democratic party leaders or potential democratic party leaders Sorry, I've got news for you. I want there to be a divide between the Democratic Party's donors, the billionaire class, the lobbyists, and Democratic Party leaders. I want the Democratic Party donors to hate Democrats so much that they abandon the party altogether, and the Democratic Party has nowhere left to turn but voters. And I shouldn't have to hope for something like this. I shouldn't have to beg a political party whose job is to represent constituents to fight for us, but instead, we have to fight With billionaire donors, voters are forced to compete with billionaires and large multinational corporations for a party that's supposed to be the champions of the working class. It's so ridiculous. So this isn't a gotcha question, and for you not answering, it shows that you're a coward. And it proves to us that you celebrate large multinational corporations and billionaires buying off our democratic party leaders you should be ashamed of yourself and furthermore this woman was a fox news contributor for 7 years so i don't know why you you think you're qualified to be the dnc chair but clearly you have no idea what voters want and maybe it's the case even though you said that you were exposed to republican propaganda and you know how to counter it maybe That got to your head a little bit because you clearly don't know uh, what the Democratic Party voters actually want right now. We don't want someone who's going to be beholden to large multinational corporations and billionaires, hence why we did not come out to support Hillary Clinton, which is why she lost. Like, I'm so frustrated by this. So in some none of these candidates prove to me that they are willing to fundamentally reform the party in the way it needs to be reformed in in order to make it the party of the people again. So in conclusion, if these are the best candidates that the Democratic Party has to offer, if any of these people will be the next DNC chair, then buckle up because we're going to have Donald Trump and the Republicans in control of Congress uh, and the White House for a very long time. So, in my opinion, outgoing Labor Secretary and current DNC Chair candidate Tom Perez already disqualified himself from the race when he decided that as Labor Secretary, he was going to go against labor unions and push for the disastrous so-called free trade deal, the TPP. So, that alone should make him not eligible to be the next DNC chair. However, if you wanted one more reason as to why you shouldn't support him, here you go. So according to The Intercept, asked at a DNC forum in Phoenix last Saturday whether he will revive President Obama's ban on corporate donations to the DNC and the ban on appointing lobbyists as party leaders, it's actually not that simple a question, Perez responded. Adding that such a move might have unintended consequences, Perez argued that such a ban might impact union members who are lobbyists, though the question explicitly only addressed corporate lobbyists. Speaking to the Huffington Post, Perez has refused to clarify his position on resurrecting President Obama's ban on lobbyist donations to the DNC, which was overturned by former DNC chair Rep. Debbie Wasserman Schultz during Hillary Clinton's bid for the presidency. The only firm restriction on special interest money, Perez has announced, is that he will not accept lobbyist donations for his own campaign committee formed to support his bid for DNC chair, but even this position has come under question. So to me, this is a deal breaker. We're not talking about the influence of labor unions here like he's trying to frame it as. We're talking about the influence of corporate lobbyists and multinational corporations and billionaires. And the reason why he's being really shady in his framing of this and why he won't commit And why he refuses to state whether or not he would ban lobbyist contributions is because he wouldn't. Tom Perez is change on the outside, continuity on the inside. This guy will not reform the Democratic Party in the way that it needs to be reformed. This is Obama's choice uh, to lead the DNC, and I don't even think he wanted to run. He was probably pushed to run by the Democratic Party establishment because they see that Members of Bernie Sanders' populist movement are rising up, and we're demanding that they stop being beholden to special interests. And Democrats are stupid enough to believe one, either that you know they can't win without corporate money, or two, uh, they don't want to get off of the corporate teat, so to speak. So they're fighting. Resi- they're fighting this. They're resisting change vehemently. And Tom Perez is basically the establishment's way of stifling change. And it's despicable. So if the party selects Tom Perez as the next DNC chair, the party will lose again, I guarantee it. Because you can't continue to do the same thing after you lost because of some something that you were doing, which is being bought off by corporations. The voters didn't come out to support you guys. We know that you guys sold out. We know you're not representing us. Liberal voters, by and large, are smarter than conservative Republican voters. So you can't fool us as easily as the Republican Party can uh, fool their constituents. So for you to try to pull the wool over our eyes and shove another corporatist down our throats like you did with Hillary Clinton it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen so tom perez is a no-go try to make him dnc chair do it if you want to lose So I recently talked about the DNC's anti-Trump war room and I was really critical of it because it's led by and staffed with Hillary Clinton campaign operatives. And these are people who already lost to Donald Trump and he's an easily beatable opponent. So if you've proven that you don't know how to defeat Donald Trump once, then certainly I don't think you should be in charge of a war room to try to defeat him or take him on again. And what I didn't realize is that There's more to this story. So apparently this war room was something that was constructed for the DNC by David Brock. So according to Counterpunch, The Democratic Party establishment has responded to Hillary Clinton's election loss the same way they would have responded had Hillary Clinton won, by changing absolutely nothing. Now that Hillary Clinton's machine has broken down, Brock is depending on bundling his donor network with that of billionaire George Soros' Democracy Alliance to push back against the direction Bernie Sanders and his supporters want to pull the party in, away from wealthy donors with the support of the Democratic Party establishment. The DNC has allowed Rock Super PAC American Bridge to develop strategy for a Trump war room, and the next DNC chair will likely be chosen by billionaire donors. At the private retreat Brock is hosting under the distraction veil afforded by Trump's inauguration ceremony. The Clinton campaign, David Brock, and the mainstream narrative focus their campaign on manufacturing outrage toward Donald Trump rather than trying to make meaningful connections with working and middle-class voters, especially in areas like the Rust Belt that have suffered increasing economic anxiety over the past decade. David Brock won't be a part of any viable solution for the Democratic Party. As Bernie Sanders' aide Michael Briggs said during the Democratic primaries, Hillary Clinton should be ashamed of her association with Brock. The same goes for the Democratic Party if they continue to provide Brock with a platform and network to perpetuate his awful ideas and strategies along with out-of-touch wealthy donors. Their top-down approach to politics, a service model animated by an unwavering belief in their own superior intelligence, leaves us defenseless in the face of Trump and the right-wing forces he's empowered, wrote Alex Press for Jacobin in November. Their existential dread of Radical change renders them suspicious of precisely the policies that could unite workers of all races and blunt Trump's appeal. In short, the rich can't save us. So, I agree with everything that was written here entirely, and I would encourage you all to read the full article because I think that Michael Sonato nailed this. So, basically, we need to reiterate what's going on here just so we're clear. So, the Democratic Party is holding a retreat with billionaires and David Brock, and they are planning to unilaterally choose the next DNC chair while we're all distracted with Donald Trump's inauguration. So if this is true, because I think he's speculating about this part, but I think that he has a reason to believe this, and we all have a reason to believe this, if this is true, we are not going to get Keith Ellison. We're going to get... Tom Perez, whether we like it or not. Because, I mean, this decision, although it's democratic, we don't make a vote. I have no say. You have no say. It comes down to people within the DNC. And the DNC, currently, they accept large sums of money from lobbyists and multinational corporations. So, who is it that those moneyed interests are going to want to be in charge of the organization? It's not going to be someone like Keith Ellison unless they can somehow buy off Keith Ellison or get him to be more friendly, uh if he does accept this position. What they're going to do is try to keep the same business as usual. And by allowing billionaires and a super PAC to literally create a strategic arm of the DNC, it's just insulting. It's so insulting because you're you're really spitting in our faces here. I mean, I've said it once, I'll say it again. After... Hillary Clinton's wing of the party and the Democratic Party establishment were defeated by Donald Trump and the Republicans when they should never win, when Donald Trump should have never won? Well, they should be begging us right now. We should be bending over and they should be kissing our asses. But we have to beg them to even have a say in the party. They don't want to change. And that communicates to me that they'd rather be corrupt and do the bidding of their wealthy donors, and super PACs, rather than change and win again, it's sickening. The party is rotten to the core. I think there's no hope for the party. And I say this as someone who is begrudgingly trying to reform the Democratic Party, because I know that we live in an electoral system that's single-member district, and that really inhibits third parties from rising up and winning. So I know we have to work with the Democrats and try to reform the Democrats, but they're making it so difficult. And, you know, it's not the party or their donors or people who are elected in the Democratic Party that's going to suffer. It's going to be the working class. So, you know, this is so frustrating because each week I try to look for rays of hope, I try to be optimistic, but there's nothing. They're vehemently resisting every attempt at change or reform. I think they're going to have to lose a couple of elections and be out of power for a while until they wake up and smell the coffee, and that's frustrating because that means we get more Donald Trump. That means we get more Republicans, and I don't want that, but I mean, what else choice do we have? The thugs in Congress, known as the Republican Party, have devised an insidious new plan to gut a landmark piece of legislation known as the Endangered Species Act. Now, this legislation does what it sounds like it does. It is helpful in the conservation of species on the verge of extinction. So, ABC News explains, Over the past eight years, GOP lawmakers sponsored dozens of measures aimed at curtailing the landmark law or putting species such as gray wolves and sage grouse out of its reach. Almost all were blocked by Democrats and the White House or lawsuits from environmentalists. Now, with the ascension of President-elect Donald Trump, Republicans see an opportunity to advance broad changes to a law they contend has been exploited by wildlife advocates to block economic development. It has never been used for the rehabilitation of species. It's been used for control of the land, said House Natural Resources Committee Chairman Rob Bishop. We've missed the entire purpose of the Endangered Species Act. It has been hijacked. Bishop said he would love to invalidate the law and would need other lawmakers' cooperation. The 1973 Act was ushered through Congress nearly unanimously, in part to stave off extinction of the national symbol, the bald eagle. Eagle populations have since rebounded and the birds were taken off the threatened and endangered list in 2007. Reforms proposed by Republicans include placing limits on lawsuits that have been used to maintain protections for some species and force decisions on others, as well as adopting a cap on how many species can be protected and giving states a greater say in the process. Any species that gets in the way of a congressional initiative or some kind of development will be clearly at risk, said Jamie Rappaport Clark President of Defenders of Wildlife and a former Fish and Wildlife Service Director under President Bill Clinton. The political lineup is as unfavorable to the Endangered Species Act as I can remember. More than 1,600 plants and animals in the U.S. are now shielded by the law. Hundreds more are under consideration for protections. Republicans complain that fewer than 70 have recovered and had protections lifted. Spokesman Mike Danilak said Barrasso will seek to strengthen and modernize the management of endangered species, but offer no specifics. Barroso's predecessor, Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma, suggested in an interview that one species should be removed from the list every time another is added. Another Republican, Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan, said he wants to limit applications for protections to one species at a time. So this makes it crystal clear to me that the Republican Party has no idea how to govern. Every time they get in office, they take a wrecking ball to civil rights, civil liberties, to the planet, and now to species that are endangered. They are just a deplorable caucus of human beings that formed a party together just to fuck things up. Now, to be objective, are there legitimate criticisms that you can have against this law? Well, sure, they complain that this prevents them from uh, thinning down areas that that are densely populated with trees that are vulnerable to forest fires. I get that. They also say that some species remain on this list for too long. Well, it's meant to be uh, changed every now and then. So I mean, if if you have problems with this, you can amend it. But what they're proposing is not an amendment. They're basically just proposing to gut the Endangered Species Act. Inhofe said that if you add a new endangered species, you have to remove one. That's not how the environment works. Are you serious? You can't control how many endangered species are on the list. If 1,000 species need protection, then 1,000 species need protection. If you allow the government to do this, you're basically letting them choose which species lives and goes extinct. And we know that that choice will be made based on their corporate donors. And then limiting the application of the Endangered Species Act or limited the amount of lawsuits you can have will render it useless. So, I mean, let me be clear here in telling you what this is really about. So, when Jamie Rappaport said any species that gets in the way of a congressional initiative or some kind of development will clearly be at risk, he hit the nail on the head because this is not about their legitimate grievances with the Endangered Species Act. This is about the Republican Party bending over backwards to appease their wealthy donors that want to screw over the environment because it's profitable and it will appease their shareholders. This is what this is about. Now, this move, you know, it's not just unethical, but it's politically stupid as well because according to Tolchin research, they found that 90% of voters support upholding the Endangered Species Act. So, the Republicans are brazenly going against the American people at the behest of their donors. So my question is, is there not a single person in this whole goddamn party that actually has any moral values? I mean, every time Republicans gain control of government, they want to remove civil rights that we've fought decades for, they want to strip more civil liberties away from us that we've fought for, like marijuana, they want to take away healthcare, they want to kill the planet, and now they want species that are vulnerable to go extinct. Is there not one person who's willing to stand up and say maybe what we're doing is wrong? Maybe we shouldn't be 100% sold out to our donors and maybe we should think just for a second that what we're doing is fucking sick? They're the party of death. That's what these rethuglicans are. We need to refer to them as what they actually are. They're the party of death. Their policies towards climate change, or lack thereof, will facilitate the end of humanity. Uh, They want people to be thrown off of their health care plan by uh, repealing the Affordable Care Act without proposing a replacement that will kill people. And now, they want species to go extinct. We'll never get them back if they go extinct. Does that not mean anything to you idiots? They're the party of death. They're sick. These Republican scumbags are sick. And I would advise you all to make a call right now to Paul Ryan and let him know that he is not going to allow this to happen. If they got the Endangered Species Act, we are not going to allow them to ever get into office again because this is disgusting. Like, how sickening is this party? How big of a scumbag asshole do you have to be to want to gut the Endangered Species Act? And what they want to do here too, which is really sneaky, is they want to put the Endangered Species Act and what species are protected in control of states. So if you're in a really red right-wing state like Alabama, they can choose just to avoid the law altogether. And now that we're on the topic of extinction, here's an idea for the Republican Party. Why don't you guys go extinct? Nobody wants you here and I think a lot of us would like to see you guys not exist anymore. So the party needs to collapse and I really hope that Republicans go the way of the dodo because you guys are grotesque. Education Secretary nominee Betsy DeVos was grilled by Democrats during her Senate confirmation hearings, and I'm glad that they were tough on her because not only is she grossly unqualified to be the Education Secretary and presumably was only nominated by Donald Trump because she's friends with Donald Trump and is a billionaire who donated to him, uh, she's also someone who holds some political positions that are just downright appalling and would be detrimental to the education of American children. Now, to give you an example of this, she previously stated, quote, there are not enough philanthropic dollars in America to fund what is currently the need in education versus what is currently being spent every year on education in this country. Our desire is to confront the culture in ways that will continue to advance God's kingdom. So she wants the American education system to mirror the, quote, education system that you see in places like Saudi Arabia, where you indoctrinate children into a religion uh, and you don't actually teach them facts. No, thank you, Betsy. Now, I think Democrats are pretty hard on on her, and I was really proud of them for doing this. But when it comes to Bernie Sanders, he took it to a whole new level. So Bernie Sanders calmly and politely crushed her soul. Mrs. Divas, there
5: is a growing fear, I think, in this country that we are moving toward uh, what some would call an oligarchic form of society, uh, where a small number of very, very wealthy billionaires control to a significant degree, our economic and political life. Um, Would you be so kind as to tell us uh, how much money your family has contributed to the Republican Party over the years?
4: Senator, first of all, thank you um, for that question. I, again, was pleased to meet you in your office uh, last week. Um, I wish I could give you that number. I don't know.
5: I have heard the number was $200 Does that sound in the ballpark?
4: collectively between yeah, over my the years, entire yes. family, that's, po- that's possible. Okay.
5: My question is, and I don't mean to be rude, but do you think if you were not a multi-billionaire, if your family has not made hundreds of millions of dollars of contributions to the Republican Party, that you would be sitting here today?
4: Senator, as a matter of fact, I do think that there would be that possibility. I've worked very hard on behalf of parents and children for the last almost 30 years to be a voice for parents and to em- a voice for students and to empower parents to make decisions on behalf of their children, primarily low-income children. Thank you.
5: Will you work with me and others to make public colleges and universities tuition-free through federal and state efforts?
4: Well, Senator, I think that's a really interesting idea. And it's really great to consider and think about, but I think we also have to consider the fact that there's nothing in life that's truly free. Somebody's going to pay for it, and so... Oh,
5: yes, you're right.
4: You're right, somebody will
5: pay for it, but that takes us to another issue. And that is, if I may, and that is right now we have proposals in front of us to substantially lower tax breaks for billionaires in this country While at the same time, low-income kids can't afford to go to college. Do you think that makes sense?
4: Senator, I think if if your question is really around how can we help college and higher education be more affordable for young people as they anticipate Actually, that wasn't
5: my question. My question is: Should we make public colleges and universities tuition-free, so that every family in America, regardless of income, will have the ability to have their kids get a higher education? That was my question.
4: Senator, I think I think we we can work together, and we could work hard on making sure that college or higher education, in some form, is affordable for all young
1: people that want to pursue it. Bernie Sanders is proving that he is a savage. Now, getting to what she actually said, uh. She basically she's so rich that she doesn't even know how much her family collectively contributed to the Republican Party. So she thinks, mm, "Maybe 200 million give or take." I think that sounds like a plausible uh, amount to donate or that we did donate. So you're you're honestly admitting to us that you're so rich, you have no idea whether or not 200 million dollars was given to a party or not? Okay, if if you have that much money, Maybe it's the case that you're just a little bit out of touch with the average American. Maybe you shouldn't be the education secretary because you have no experience here. Now, she also said that she's not in favor of making public colleges and universities tuition-free. And she said, quote, nothing in life is truly free. Uh, and she said, you know, somebody's got to pay for it. And Bernie Sanders brilliantly said, yeah, you're right. You're going to pay for it because we're going to tax billionaires like you who are greedy and you are going to fund the tuition uh, of average Americans. I think that's pretty reasonable. I mean, they get tax breaks, they get bailed out when the economy is in ruins. So why can't they bail us out and pay for our education? Now, there were other portions of her confirmation hearing that were just utterly absurd. So when it comes to the question as to whether she would allow guns in schools, she said, well, you know, we probably should keep guns in schools because bears. You can't say definitively today that guns shouldn't be in schools.
4: Well, I I will refer back to uh, Senator Enzi and the school that he was talking about in Wapiti, Wyoming. I think probably there, I I would imagine that there's probably a gun in the
1: school to protect from potential grizzlies. What the hell did you just say? Yeah, she wasn't joking there. She wasn't being tongue-in-cheek. She said uh, schools should have guns because of bears. Our next possible education secretary, ladies and gentlemen. Now, also, I wanted to highlight some brazen instances of hypocrisy because she claimed to to be in favor of LGBT equality, yet she's contributed millions of dollars to vehemently anti-gay organizations like Focus on the Family. Take a look.
0: Mr. DeVos, your family has a long history of supporting anti-LGBT causes, including donating millions of dollars to groups that push conversion therapy, the practice of trying to change someone's sexual orientation, Or gender identity. For example, you and your family have given over ten million dollars to focus on the family, an organization that currently states on its website that, quote, homosexual strugglers can and do change their sexual behavior and identity. Mrs. DeVos, conversion therapy has been widely discredited and rejected for decades by every mainstream medical and mental health organization as neither medically nor ethically appropriate. It has been shown to lead to depression, anxiety, drug use, homelessness, and suicide, particularly in LGBT youth. In fact, many of the leaders and founders of conversion therapy, including both religious ministries and mental health professionals, have not only publicly renounced it, but have issued former, formal apologies for their work and how harmful it has been to the individuals involved. Mr. Chairman, I would ask that this be included in the record. It will be. Mrs. DeVos, do you still believe in conversion therapy?
4: Franken, I've never believed in that. First of all, let me say I fully embrace equality, and I believe in the innate value of every single human being, and that all students, no matter their age, should be able to attend a school and feel safe and be free of discrimination. So let's start there. And let me just say that your characterization of contributions, I don't think accurately reflects those of my family. Um, I don't well, you've been- I, I would hope that you wouldn't include other family members uh, beyond my core family.
1: Now finally, even though we've all been disappointed in Elizabeth Warren lately, I couldn't help but enjoy her make a complete and utter fool out of Betsy Devos.
2: Mrs. Devos, do you have any direct experience in running a bank? Senator, I do not. Uh Uh-huh. Do you have, you ever managed or overseen a trillion-dollar loan program? I have not. How about a billion-dollar loan program? I have not. Okay, so no experience managing a program like this. How about participating in one? I think it's important for the person who is in charge of our financial aid programs to understand what it's like for students and their families who are struggling to pay for college. Mrs. DeVos, have you ever taken out a student loan from the federal government to help pay for college? I have not. Uh, have any of your children had to borrow money in order to go to college?
4: They have been fortunate not to. Uh
2: huh. Have you had any personal experience with the Pell Grant?
4: Uh, not personal experience, but certainly friends and um, students with whom I've worked. So you have, have no
2: personal experience with college financial aid or management of higher education. Mrs. DeVos, then let's start with the basics. Do you support protecting federal taxpayer dollars from waste, fraud, and abuse? Absolutely. Oh, good. So do I. Because now we all know that President-elect Trump's experience with higher education was to create a fake university, which resulted in his paying a $25 million to students that he cheated. So I'm curious about how the Trump administration would protect against waste, fraud, and abuse at similar for-profit colleges. So here's my question. How do you plan to protect taxpayer dollars from waste, fraud, and abuse by colleges that take in millions of dollars in federal student aid?
4: Senator, um, if confirmed, I will certainly be very vigilant. Yeah, I'm asking the people, how. I, the, the, the how are you going to do that? You said you're committed. The individuals with whom I work in the department will ensure that federal monies are used properly and appropriately, and I will look forward to working so, with you. So your- you're
2: gonna subcontract making sure that what happened with uh, universities that cheat students doesn't happen anymore?
4: No, I didn't uh, You're that. gonna
2: give that to someone else to do? I just wanna know what your ideas are for making sure we don't have problems with waste, fraud, and abuse.
4: I, I want to make sure we don't have problems with that as well, and well, here, if confirmed, I will work diligently to ensure that we are addressing any of those issues. Well, let
2: me make a suggestion on this. It actually turns out that there are a whole group of rules that are already written and are there, and all you have to do is enforce them. So what I want to know is, will you commit to enforcing these rules to ensure that no career college receives federal funds unless they can prove that they are actually preparing their students for gainful employment and not cheating them. Senator, I will commit to ensuring that
4: institutions which receive federal funds are actually serving their students well. And
2: and so you will enforce the gainful employment rule to make sure that these career colleges are not cheating students? Uh, we will certainly review
4: that rule. You'll and review see that, it, you and, will not and commit to enforce
2: it, it? And see that it is uh,
4: actually achieving what the, the intentions are. I,
2: I don't understand about reviewing it. We talked about this in my office. There are already rules in place to stop waste, fraud, and abuse. And I don't understand how you cannot not be sure about enforcing them. You know, swindlers? and crooks are out there doing backflips when they hear an answer like this. If confirmed, you will be the cop on the beat. And if you can't commit to use the tools that are already available to you in the Department of Education, then I don't see how you can be the Secretary of Education.
1: So make no mistake, I've had my criticisms of Elizabeth Warren in the past, but what she did there was brilliant. She got Betsy DeVos to implicitly admit that she's not qualified to be the education secretary, that she doesn't have the experience to be the education secretary. And I thought it was brilliant. And you could really see it on her face that she knew she was being cornered and she had no idea how to back herself out of said corner. I loved it. And it was, it was weird that she wouldn't commit to enforcing the gainful employment rule, which prevents for-profit colleges from basically ripping students off. And as education secretary, you would expect someone to be on the side of the students, right? On the side of the people who are pursuing an education, but clearly she's a billionaire. She has businesses. So she's on the side of the for profit colleges who rip students off. They defraud students. And this has been a phenomenon that's been occurring for decades in the country. And we need an education secretary who's going to stomp on these idiots, who's going to crush them if they're going to rip off the American people. If you're not actually going to educate people and give them the skills that they need, if you're just going to take their money and then rip them off, that's unacceptable. You're defrauding them. So Betsy DeVos, however, is not saying that she's going to prevent this from happening. And Elizabeth Warren made the point that when you do this, you know, all the swindlers, they they do backflips and she's 100% right there. So shout out to Elizabeth Warren, for impressing me again, but I'm going to need to see more. But nonetheless, that was brilliant. So, I mean, in the end, I can't see how she can possibly be the Secretary of Education, not just because she has reprehensible fundamentalist evangelical views, but also because... She has zero experience whatsoever. So, Betsy, why don't you do us all a favor and go back to one of your many mansions? Stop trying to get involved with government. You have no idea what you're doing. You're an oligarch. Just enjoy your life. Enjoy your money. Go back to your mansions and leave us alone. Stay out of government. We don't need you. We don't want you here. More confirmation hearings took place this week, and Bernie Sanders did what he always does best, and that is scrutinize the hell out of people and call them out on their bullshit when it's necessary for him to do so. So when it comes to Tom Price, who Donald Trump wants to be the leader of the Health and Human Services Department, well, Bernie Sanders asked him point blank, is Donald Trump going to hold his promise to the American people?
5: Congressman Price, a very simple question. Is the president-elect, Mr. Trump, going to keep his word to the American people and not cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, or did he lie to the American people?
6: Uh, I, have, I haven't I have had extensive discussions with him about the comments that he made, but I have no reason to believe that, uh, that he's changed his position.
1: So you're meaning to tell me that in the process of donald Trump asking you to be his uh hhs secretary he didn't talk to you about health care medicaid medicare social security nothing i think that answer is a cop-out and it's so frustrating to me uh that bernie sanders didn't have more time to kind of push him on this issue now bernie sanders also asked him whether or not he thought health care was a right and his response was really frustrating
5: the united states of america is the only major country on earth that does not guarantee health care to all people as a right. Canada does it, every major country in Europe does it. Do you believe that healthcare is a right of all Americans, whether they're rich or they're poor? Should people, because they are Americans, be able to go to the doctor when they need to, be able to go into a hospital because
6: they are Americans? Yes, we're a compassionate society. No, we're not a
5: compassionate society. In terms of our relationship to poor and working people, our record is worse than virtually any other country on earth. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty of any other major country on earth, and half of our senior older workers have nothing set aside for retirement. So I don't think compared to other countries, we are particularly compassionate. But my question is, in Canada, in other countries, all people have the right to get health care. Do you believe we should move in that direction?
6: If you want to talk about other countries' health care systems, there are consequences to the decisions that they've made, just as there are consequences to the decisions that we've made. I believe, and I look forward to working with you, to make certain that every single American has access to the highest quality care and coverage that is possible. Has access to
5: does not mean that they are guaranteed health care. I have access to buying a $10 million home. I don't have the
6: money to do that. And that's why the, the we, we, we believe it's appropriate to put in place a system that gives every person the financial feasibility to be able to purchase the coverage that they want for themselves and for their family. Again, not what the government forces them to buy. Yeah, but if they don't have any... Well, that's a longest story. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Basically, he tried to espouse uh, platitudes. He's like, we're a compassionate society. And Bernie Sanders shut him down immediately because we're not a compassionate society. You don't say we're a compassionate society because the people who go bankrupt or die Due to lack of healthcare coverage, they wouldn't call us a compassionate society. And when you look at the fact that we're the only major modern nation who doesn't offer healthcare to all citizens, no, we're not a compassionate society. And that's not even getting to the war issue. But also, he said, if you want to talk about other countries' healthcare systems, there are consequences to the decisions they made, just as there are consequences to the decisions we've made. Right. The consequences in Canada, for example, is that if you have a medical emergency, you don't go bankrupt and you don't die. Whereas in the United States, if you don't have insurance and you have a medical emergency, you do either go bankrupt or you die. That's the consequences. Now, what he's really implying here is that, well, people die in Canada because they wait so long. I've heard this from uh, Republicans before. It's bullshit. Yeah, you might have to wait longer in Canada if you don't have a medical emergency, but you will get seen. You will get healthcare. It's guaranteed. So, uh, I'm okay with Canada prioritizing people who are more sick and moving them up on the schedule, but I'm not okay with anyone dying. See? So, you can't wiggle your way out, which is what he wanted to do with this question, and try to pretend like you're in favor of healthcare when you really aren't. Now, he brought up access to healthcare, and Bernie Sanders correctly stated, well, I have access to buying a million-dollar house, but I don't have the money to do that. So, I mean, Bernie Sanders gave him no wiggle room to obfuscate here, which is what he really wanted to do. He wanted to dodge the question, and he was really uncomfortable. Uh, But I'm really glad that Bernie Sanders called him out and really pressured him on this topic because... It showed to us that this guy is not fit to lead the HHS. And really, Tom Price has no business being in charge of any department of government because during his tenure in the House, he's demonstrated that he's overtly corrupt. So Slate explains how he's corrupt in a number of ways. So first, the congressman has a habit of trading stocks in medical companies while also writing legislation that could sway those firms' fortunes. The Wall Street Journal recently found that Price had bought and sold stock in about 40 healthcare, pharmaceutical, and biomedical companies Since 2012, including a dozen in the current congressional session. In total, he traded shares worth $300,000. Price, a former orthopedic surgeon who now chairs the extremely powerful House Budget Committee, regularly introduces bills on healthcare policy and sits on the House subcommittee that oversees Medicare. Second, his investments have included at least one very nice bargain. In 2015, Price bought discounted stock in a small Australian biotech firm, Innate Immuno, that was attempting to win Food and Drug Administration approval for a new multiple sclerosis drug. Price purchased the stock in a private offering marked only to sophisticated U.S. investors that Kaiser Health News referred to as a sweetheart deal. To be fair, all U.S. buyers received a 12% discount on their shares, which is reportedly standard in such a private placement. However, the stock price was also rising fast. Price has notched a 400% gain on the investment, Kaiser notes. Finally, as CNN reported this weekend, Price introduced a bill that would assist a major medical device maker less than a week after investing in it. Price bought between $1,001 and $15,000 in Zimmer Biomet, which manufactures products like knee and hip replacement parts. Within days, he introduced the HIP Act, which would have delayed a new Obama administration regulation that may have crimped Zimmer Biomet's profits by changing the way Medicare paid for hip and knee replacement surgeries. So, he's overtly corrupt and brazenly so. He makes no attempt to hide his corruption. So, this guy should be in jail right now. He shouldn't be leading a government department. But this is the state of American politics. We have someone who is brazenly corrupt, who invests in companies and then literally proposes legislation to help them so that way he profits from that. He might lead the Department of Health and Human Services. It's disgusting. When it comes to Scott Pruitt, this is an individual who Donald Trump wants to lead the EPA. And unfortunately, this guy should not be in charge of the EPA because he is a climate change denier. He's previously stated that he thinks climate change is a hoax. So thankfully, Bernie Sanders came to the rescue, as he always does.
5: 97% of the scientists who wrote articles in peer-reviewed journals believe that human activity is the fundamental reason we are seeing climate change. You disagree with that? I believe
3: the ability to measure with precision
5: the degree of human activity's impact on the climate
3: is subject to more debate on whether uh, the climate is changing or whether human activity contributes to it.
5: While you are not certain, the vast majority of scientists are telling us that if we do not get our act together and transform our energy system away from fossil fuel, there is a real question as to the quality of the planet. That we are going to be leaving our children and our grandchildren so you are applying for a job as administrator for the epa to protect our environment overwhelming majority of scientists say we have got to act boldly and you're telling me that there needs to be more debate on this issue and that we should not be acting boldly
3: no senator as i've indicated uh, the climate. The climate is changing, and human activity. But you haven't told me effect. why. Why you think the climate is changing? Well, Senator, the job of the administrator is to carry out the statutes as passed by this body. And to why, c- is why is the
5: climate it. changing,
3: Senator? In response to the CO two issue, uh, the EPA administrator is constrained by statutes. I'm, I'm asking you a personal opinion. My my personal opinion is is immaterial.
5: To oh, the, really?
3: To, to the job of to the job of. You are going to be
5: the head of the agency to protect the environment and your personal feelings about whether climate change is caused by human activity and carbon emissions is immaterial? Senator, I've acknowledged to you that the human activity impacts the... Impacts. Yes. Scientific community doesn't tell us it impacts. They say it is the cause of climate change. We have to transform our energy system. Do you believe we have to transform our energy system in order to protect the planet for future generations? I believe the EPA has a very important role at, at regulating the emissions of You didn't of answer CO2. my question. Do you believe we have to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to do what the scientific community is telling us in order to make sure that this planet is healthy for our children and grandchildren? Senator, I believe that the
3: administrator has a very important role to perform in regulating CO2. Um,
5: can you tell me, uh, as I think all of us know, uh, Oklahoma has been subjected to a record-breaking number of earthquakes. Uh, scientists in Oklahoma or well, scientists say that Oklahoma is almost certain to have more earthquakes with heightened risk of a large quake probable to endure for a decade and that the cause of this is fracking. Can you point me, picking up on Senator Harris's uh, discussion with you, can you point me to uh, any opinion that you wrote, any enforcement actions you took against the companies that were injecting waste, fracking, water? Senator, let me say I'm very concerned uh,
3: about the connection between uh, activity in Oklahoma and And therefore
5: you must have taken action. I guess, can you tell me who you find for doing this if you're very concerned? The Corporation
3: Commission in Oklahoma is vested with the jurisdiction, and they've actually acted on that.
5: And you have made public statements expressing your deep concern about this. We have worked with, through our... You have made public statements. You're in a state which is seeing a record-breaking number of earthquakes. You're the Attorney General. Obviously, you have stood up and said you will do everything you can to stop future earthquakes as a result of fracking. Senator, I've acknowledged that I'm concerned about... You acknowledge the. Acknowledge that you are concerned. Your yep. state is having a record number of... Re- well if that's the kind of uh administrator for the epa (laughs) your state's having a record-breaking number of earthquakes you acknowledge you are concerned if that's the kind of um uh epa administrator you will be uh you're not going to get my vote
1: so i love that bernie sanders grilled him and even laughed at him because what he said there was ridiculous he did concede on the point that climate change is occurring but if you notice what he did there, he wouldn't admit that climate change was anthropogenic because if you admit that human activity causes climate change, then you also implicitly admit that we can do something about it. But if you admit the climate is changing and it's out of our control, then why would you legislate to stop the climate from rapidly changing? So that's the logic here. And this is really the state of the new climate denial movement. And this guy is a master in obfuscation of the truth. But Bernie Sanders was onto his bullshit and did not let him get out of it. He also showed us that he has no regard for the earthquakes caused by fracking in Oklahoma. And this is his state. You're the attorney general of this state and you don't seem to be that concerned that fracking causes earthquakes. You're going to be the leader of the EPA. So I'm inclined to believe that Scott Pruitt is the worst possible choice. But Donald Trump, he's not going to throw us a bone in any way, shape, or form. The people who I would have hoped Donald Trump would have appointed to lead certain government departments uh, were Rand Paul. Ron Paul, I don't agree with them on everything, but at least they're more reasonable. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, I wish that she would have been Secretary of State. But unfortunately, he chose the worst of the worst, and unfortunately, uh, if we reject these people well then we 're probably going to get someone who 's is equally bad, if not worse so we 're going to be stuck with someone who 's a climate change de- denier, regardless if we like it or not. A climate denier who thinks climate change is a hoax will lead the epa that 's a really difficult pill for me to swallow it's, it, it's, it's unfathomable to me, but unfortunately, this is, this is the state of the country. A climate denier will be in charge of the EPA, if he's confirmed, and someone who doesn't believe healthcare is a right will be in charge of the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, like, I'm at a loss for words here. All I can say is if there's any extraterrestrials that are watching us and they're aware of our existence and you are planning on intervening now is the time to do it and save us from ourselves because at this point we're running the planet into the ground debbie wasserman schultz was on cnn and she was asked to comment on whether or not she thought russia influenced the outcome of the election and her response was pretty ironic. I want to ask you specifically, look, some of them had
4: said they would come out and not come before Congressman Lewis. But there is no doubt that when he came out and said that Trump was not a, a legitimate president, that is when we started seeing people come out in, in scores and saying, we're not, we're not coming. He said that Trump is not a legitimate president because he says the Russians participated in helping Trump get elected. Um, and look, they didn't just help Trump. Their hacking of the DNC cost you your job as chair of the DNC. So, so let me just ask you this question directly. Do you believe Trump is a legitimate president? What I believe is that
0: there's no question that the outcome of this election was affected by the Russian interference with the campaign. And because our intelligence community has unequivocally stated that Russia's intent was to influence the outcome of the election in favor of Donald Trump, I believe, one, that... uh, The investigation that the United States Senate is going to do into the relationship and interaction potentially between the Trump campaign and Russian uh, and Russian officials, uh, that's essential. Uh, But I think there's no question that the outcome of this election was affected by Russian interference with the with the campaign.
1: No doubt. (laughs) So let me ask you this, Debbie. Would you say that Russia influenced the election between Clinton and Trump more or less than you influenced the election between Clinton and Sanders? Because, uh, I want to reiterate what you said here. There's no question the outcome of this election was affected by Russian interference. So what you're saying, Debbie, is that Russia influenced the outcome of the election by exposing how you influenced the outcome of the election. It- Now, what's interesting to me is that the evidence that supposedly confirms that Russia did, in fact, hack into the emails of the DNC and John Podesta, well, that evidence is secret. It's classified. We're not allowed to see it. So even if, though, that we can prove and see the evidence and confirm beyond a shadow of a doubt that Russia did, in fact, hack into those emails to state that that influenced the outcome of the election, don't you think that's a dubious assertion, because you can't say that this actually did have a huge impact on the election. I would argue that Hillary Clinton did not lose because of these emails. She lost because she did not appeal to the working class. So while we can't prove, however, that Russia influenced the election, what we can prove, Debbie, is that you influenced the outcome of the Democratic Party primaries. So as it stands, you have no right to talk about interfering in elections when you literally had to step down because you interfered with an election. You hypocrite. So this is just like I'm I was honestly shocked. Like Debbie continues, even though she's done really egregious things, she continues to surprise me because I don't know how low that bar is going to be lowered. But uh, trust me, she's lowering the bar in terms of what the Democratic Party will say and do. That's just incredibly hypocritical or ironic. Now, also, I don't know if you caught it, but the CNN anchor literally stated that Russia cost Debbie Wasserman Schultz her job. Excuse me? It's the actions of the person who's committing the crime that led to their punishment. So, I mean, since when is it acceptable to label a person exposed of wrongdoing as the victim? That's what you're doing. You're making Debbie Wasserman Schultz, whose guilt was exposed, you're making her into the victim. So, why are you allowing Debbie Wasserman Schultz to be the victim When she's the one who victimized Bernie Sanders supporters, she defrauded Bernie Sanders supporters, hence why we're suing her currently. So, it's just, I I feel like everyone has lost their minds here. What I also find hilarious is that knowing uh, that the DNC's emails contained evidence that the DNC and Debbie Wasserman Schultz did, in fact, tip the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton, well, she literally confronted James Comey about this. She told Comey that he should have come to her directly once the FBI was aware of the breach, just as he had done with other hacking victims, because presumably, if Comey had notified her in advance, then she could have hid the emails, uh, and maybe... Could have been shielded from public scrutiny, and wouldn't have lost her job. <laughs> this is a joke. Like, this is a joke. The Democratic Party should want nothing to do with Debbie Wasserman Schultz. But Unfortunately, this is the norm in the Democratic Party, this level of hypocrisy where, where of all people, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, I almost said Hillary Clinton, where Debbie Wasserman Schultz has the gall to complain and cry about how Russia influenced the election when she influenced an election. If you didn't influence the election yourself and rig the primary against Bernie Sanders, then what Russia did wouldn't have mattered. They wouldn't have been able to influence the election if you can, in fact, prove that they did influence the election or even hack into the emails, which... I'd like to see the evidence before I make a conclusion, Uh, but I'm sorry. It's your fault. Hillary lost because you rigged the primaries in favor of her when she was the demonstrably weaker candidate. She lost in 2008, and we all were telling you she was going to lose again, or was in danger of losing if you don't wake up, but you decided to lose with Hillary Clinton rather than win with Bernie. It's your own fault, so don't cry to me about rigging the election. Why don't you focus on the election that you rigged and apologize for that first before you start talking about Russia, Debbie. Debbie. So as progressives, we all know that the Democratic Party establishment has repeatedly and brazenly tried to squash the populist movement that was catalyzed by Bernie Sanders, and for the most part, they've been successful at doing this at the national level. However, at the state level, well, Bernie Kratz just took control of the second largest state party organization in the country. So according to The Hill, supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders turned out en masse at ordinarily sleepy party caucuses earlier this month, electing a slate of delegates who could be poised to take over the largest Democratic Party organization outside of Washington, D.C. As final vote totals trickled in, Sanders backers claimed to have elected more than 650 delegates out of the 1,120 available seats chosen at this month's caucuses. Those delegates will choose the next state Democratic Party chairman along with other party officials. Sanders supporters say they hope to change the very nature of the Democratic Party. One of the issues we're looking to do is transform the party, said Shannon Jackson, executive director of Our Revolution, the organization that grew out of Sanders' presidential campaign. This is the first step in that process. Our Revolution ran an on the ground get-out-the-vote effort to make sure supporters attended caucuses in each of the state's 80 assembly districts. The group sent out more than 100,000 emails and delivered 40,000 text messages, Jackson told The Hill. More than 800 Sanders supporters signed up to run for delegate seats. Longtime Democratic activists used to low-turnout caucuses in which only party regulars showed up were stunned by the long lines they faced this year. One party strategist in Sacramento said he waited 45 minutes in line before being able to vote when he was used to walking in and out in the span of five minutes. This is to basically force the issues that we vote on Onto the legislators for action. So it's a very serious sea change, said Roseanne DeMoro, who heads National Nurses United and the California Nurses Association, groups that backed Sanders during his 2016 presidential primary. The first test of the new Sanders block of voters will come in May, when California Democrats choose a replacement for outgoing state party chairman John Burton. The Nurses Union backs Kimberly Ellis, a San Francisco area party activist who runs Emerge California, a group that trains trains Democratic women to run for office. Ellis will face Eric Bauman, who heads the Los Angeles Democratic Party, and who backed former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election. Sanders' group has not made an endorsement in the race, though Jackson said our revolution would consider weighing in. California is not the only state in which Sanders backers are trying to take over the Democratic parties. The group is also organizing in Florida, Iowa, Colorado, and Michigan, Jackson said. Hopefully, within a year or two, we'll have a majority of states covered, Jackson said. So guys, this is awesome. I mean, if you were part of this, kudos to you. You did a phenomenal job. And we really have to give credit to our revolution because I was very skeptical, you know, at the inception of this organization that it wouldn't be as progressive as we were hoping. But I mean, it's proving to really be a fantastic organization that's doing a lot of good. So I mean, the fact that they were able to mobilize voters and get them to show out in mass like this. And to know that this same tactic is being used in Florida, Iowa, Colorado, and Michigan, it's great. I mean, if we can't get change at the national level, then eventually we can create change at the state and local levels and help that to spread across the country to where, you know, the Democratic Party, they're totally infiltrated by Berniecrats. So, I mean, this is a phenomenal victory. This is huge for us. I mean, California and the California Democratic Party. They're a huge organization. They have a lot of sway throughout the country. So for them to take over and hold a majority now, uh, it's it's so great. Now to see what type of uh, progressive reforms they'd be able to push and to see who they appoint as the uh, head of their party organization, it's going to be exciting to watch. So honestly, this is, this is a shocking victory to me because as progressives, we've been completely demoralized. The Democratic Party has tried to do everything they they could to quell our criticism of them and to shut us down and to silence us. But, you know, they've shown that they, they've they awoken a beast. With Hillary Clinton and Debbie Wasserman Schultz and the DNC, you guys, you did not know who you were messing with. And I'm going to cite the corniest line ever, but I, I think it's appropriate here. Uh, it's the line that states, you know, they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. I think it's it's pretty relevant <laughs> here, even though, you know, it. It's kind of corny but it's true what came out of bernie sanders movement and his campaign is something that's so big and so powerful that i never could have predicted that it would actually have lasting power that it's showing to have so this is huge uh i'm really proud of you guys The Republican Party has talked a big game when it comes to repealing the Affordable Care Act, and Bernie Sanders said something in an interview with MSNBC that I thought was really fascinating. He says that after eight years of smack-talking, they're actually getting a little bit nervous about actually repealing the Affordable Care Act, because obviously... They don't have a replacement and throwing 30 million people off of their current health insurance plan is not a good way to govern and not a good way to win elections. So here's what he had to say.
2: So what do you do as Democrats? Do you oppose whatever replacement plan they come up with? Can you see a
5: scenario where you could say this is not a difficult proposition. What sane people will do is sit together and say, OK, are there problems with the Affordable Care Act? Yes. Were there problems, serious problems with the American health care system before the Affordable Care Act? Let's not forget, everything wasn't perfect before Barack Obama became president. We had 50 million people who had no health insurance. We were paying the highest prices in the world. So the question is what sane people do is say, okay, what do you think are the problems? What do I think of the problems? How do we address those problems? How do we work together? What you don't do is say, we are going to repeal the entire Affordable Care Act and we got nothing to replace it.
2: They have the
5: votes to repeal it, though, right? Yeah, but they got nothing to, yes, they do. But I think there are a number of Republicans who are getting a little bit nervous and understanding that, yeah, it's easy to repeal, but how, what do you replace it with? Is it responsible to simply throw the whole thing out without having another replacement
2: so do you think that republicans may not have the vote to repeal it in the first place well, i think i you know i
5: can't predict and i'm not part of the republican caucus to be sure but i think there are some republicans who are getting a little bit nervous to understand you can't throw 20 million people off of health insurance without having uh, some type of replacement plan
1: so i really thought that that was fascinating because I I suspected that they were getting nervous. I know Donald Trump has certainly expressed reservations on Twitter that they need to be careful, this is his words, about repealing the Affordable Care Act because this is currently the Democratic Party's disaster. And if they're not careful, it could become the Republican Party's disaster. So Bernie said they understand that it's easy to repeal, but what do you replace it with? Is it responsible to throw the whole thing out without replacing it? Right, they should be nervous because... Running government is about more than talking shit. Now they actually have to deliver for the American people. And the Republican Party, they've proven time and again that they have no idea what they're doing, and they don't know how to govern. They don't know how to do anything but be sellouts and appease their corporate donors and billionaire donors. So when it comes to actually providing the American people with health insurance, they have no idea the scale of this task and what they actually need to do. Uh, And they're probably realizing that anything that they can come up with will be very similar to the Affordable Care Act because Obamacare, really, what that was, was a conservative neoliberal policy. It was proposed by the Heritage Foundation and it was codified into law by Mitt Romney. So how are they going to... Create a plan that's substantially different. The only thing they can really do is propose a public option or move towards a single payer system, but we all know that that's not going to happen. And Donald Trump did, in fact, state that he wants to come up with a plan uh, that would allow all Americans to have health care. Now, the implication here is single payer. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be the case. I would love for it to be the case, but I think Donald Trump is pretty naive if he thinks the Republican Party, who accepts millions of dollars collectively from the health insurance industry, is going to move towards single-payer. He's incredibly naive, but I don't think Donald Trump is actually implying that he does want a single-payer system. Now, the thing that the Republicans need to understand is that their, their base has no idea what... The Affordable Care Act is or does. They don't. Many people think that the Affordable Care Act is different from Obamacare. I mean there was a segment on Jimmy Kimmel where he made fun of people. I mean this isn't a representative sample, but I mean nonetheless it, it illustrates the ignorance of people how they think Obamacare is bad because it has Obama's name on it, but they don't realize that this is the Affordable Care Act. So nobody knows what's going on and the Republican party doesn't realize that their voters are uninformed. And they're uninformed because if you were informed, why would you vote Republican in the first place? So What they're going to do is they're going to repeal Obamacare, their base will cheer them on, and then once their base realizes that they just lost their subsidy and they no longer have health insurance, well, then there's going to be hell to pay, and Republicans are going to get kicked out of Congress when this does inevitably happen. So, I mean, when it comes to whether or not Republicans will, in fact, repeal the Affordable Care Act without proposing a solution, I think they're stupid enough to do it, but only time will tell, and, uh, you know, they've already taken steps to repeal the Affordable Care Act, so we'll see, but I mean, it's not smart, and I really feel as though this is going to bite them in the ass. Knowing that Vice President Mike Pence governed as a right-wing homophobe, well, the LGBT community anticipated that he would do the same as Vice President, so they decided to show up to his home in D.C. and protest in the most hilarious and gayest way possible so to kind of set this up for you before i tell you what happened so outside of his home in dc mike pence probably heard a bunch of shitty pop music playing he heard a lot of loud noises and people cheering and chanting so like any normal person he probably decided to look out the window and see what all the commotion was about and when he did look out the window and see what the hell was going on this is what he saw (laughs) So <laughs> it's it's a it's a homophobe's worst nightmare to look out your window and see a gay man twerking <laughs> To really bad pop music. The individual who helped to organize this event had this to say about why he decided to do it It's important because Mike Pence has passed several laws and has through his actions and through his stances had very anti-LGBT Policies and he's now entering into the second highest position in the country. Are you concerned about the next four years? Uh, We are definitely concerned and that's why we're out here protesting with love self-acceptance self uh, self Self-expression and peace. Thank you. Thank you. So I mean I don't really have much to say about this other than shout out to these people. I really am a big fan of this type of grassroots activism. And these people, they're really standing up and they're choosing not to roll over and accept whatever anti-gay policies Mike Pence puts forward as vice president. And what they're really doing is they're sending him a strong and clear message that if he governs as vice president in the same manner as he was as the governor of Indiana, that's harmful to the LGBT community, uh then they're going to show up to his house and protest him relentlessly. And I think that this type of grassroots activism is how you really get the attention of politicians because they often screw over the American people and then go home to their mansion and then try to forget about it. But if you show up to their house and protest and show these people that you mean business and you're not going to allow him to get an office... And push these really harmful policies to the LGBT community, then I think that you can be effective at putting pressure on him. So, you know, this is this is really great. And I'm honestly really proud of my fellow gays here. You guys were killing it. Uh, and, And I really hope to see this level of activism among all wings of the democratic party because i think that there's one thing that the bernie and hillary clinton wing can agree on we all are in favor of lgbt equality we shouldn't even still be talking about it but the fact that we do is the unfortunate situation that we're living in so even though i want to help reform the party i certainly don't want to go backwards when it comes to the progress that we've made so you know i thought that this this was great and it was also really hilarious but i think it was important uh more so than anything I'm obviously late in talking about this, uh, but given the current state of American politics, we typically don't see a lot of progressive victories, so I couldn't miss it even though I'm late. So obviously by now, you all know that President Obama has commuted the majority of Chelsea Manning's sentence, and this was a huge victory. Like, I can't, I can't explain. How good of a thing this is, and how big of a win this is for progressives. So according to the New York Times, President Obama on Tuesday commuted all but four months of the remaining prison sentence of Chelsea Manning, the army intelligence analyst convicted of a 2010 leak that revealed American military and diplomatic activities across the world, disrupted Mr. Obama's administration, and brought global prominence to WikiLeaks, the recipient of those disclosures. The decision by Mr. Obama rescued Miss Manning, who twice tried to kill herself last year from an uncertain future as a transgender woman incarcerated at the men's military prison at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. She has been jailed for nearly seven years, and her 35-year sentence was by far the longest punishment ever imposed in the United States for a leak conviction. Now, if it weren't for Chelsea Manning, we don't know whether or not WikiLeaks would have the prominence that it has today, so she put them on the map for one. Uh, and second of all, even though they said it really nicely there that she exposed the activity of the American military, what she exposed were war crimes that our military was committing.
6: Roger. Uh, Break. Crazy Horse uh, 1A, request permission to uh, engage. I'm picking up the wounded. We're trying to get permission to engage. Come on,
1: let us shoot. You know, for her to be released, uh, it's the right thing because she's a whistleblower. And it's also a good thing because this literally saved her life this is what her lawyer actually believes and the 35 year sentence was particularly egregious and and she has served uh, nearly seven years already longer than, than anyone in the United States
4: history for uh, for leaking public document for leaking documents to the uh, press
0: and the public interest and so um, you know we'll ne- we, we likely will never know the, the reasons for for Obama's actions but I think it was probably a combination of those things and I truly do believe that uh,
1: this has saved her life so now to summarize what she did miss Manning was still known as Bradley Manning when she deployed with her unit to Iraq in late 2009. There, she worked as a low-level intelligence analyst, helping her unit assess insurgent activity in the area it was patrolling, a role that gave her access to a classified computer network. She copied hundreds of thousands of military incident logs from the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, which among other things exposed abuses of detainees by Iraqi military officers working with American forces, and showed that civilian deaths in the Iraq War were probably much higher than official estimates. The files she copied also included about 250,000 diplomatic cables from American embassies showing sensitive deals and conversations, and documents detailing intelligence assessments of Guantanamo detainees held without trial, and a video of an American helicopter attack in Baghdad in which two Reuters journalists were killed, among others. She decided to make all these files public as she wrote at the time in the hope that they would incite worldwide discussion, debates, and reforms. WikiLeaks disclosed them, working with traditional news organizations, including the New York Times, bringing notoriety to the group and its founder, Julian Assange. The disclosures set off a frantic scramble as Obama administration officials sought to minimize any potential harm, including getting to safety some foreigners in, da- in dangerous countries who were identified as having helped American troops or diplomats. Prosecutors, however, presented no evidence that anyone had been killed because of the leaks. Prosecutors said that because the secret material was Made available for publication on the internet, anyone, including Al Qaeda, could read it. And they accused Miss Manning of treason, charging her with multiple counts under the Espionage Act, as well as with aiding the enemy—a potential capital offense. Although they said they would not seek her execution, Miss Manning confessed and pleaded guilty to a lesser version of those charges without any deal to cap her sentence. But prosecutors pressed forward with the trial and won convictions on the more serious versions of those charges. A Military judge acquitted her of aiding the enemy. Now, I really want to stress just how unfair this whole situation was and how unfair the American government was to Chelsea Manning because her lawyers correctly characterized the verdict as, quote, perhaps the most unjust sentence in the history of the military justice system. And this is due to a number of reasons, not just the verdict, but how she was treated. So, this is according to WikiLeaks no whistleblower has ever been punished this harshly and Manning, quote, waited in prison for three years for a trial. That's 986 days longer than the legal maximum, and she was also subject to deplorable conditions, was denied her glasses, denied sleep, blankets, and clothes, and was prevented from exercising. So, effectively, She was tortured. Now, additionally, key portions of the trial were to be conducted in secrecy. So, 24 prosecution witnesses gave secret testimonies in closed sessions, permitting the judge to claim that secret evidence justifies her decision. And furthermore, this leak did not endanger the lives of Americans as it was widely believed to be the case. So... Bradley Manning, now known as Chelsea Manning, this is someone who's a hero. This is someone who's a whistleblower, and President Obama said that he would protect whistleblowers, but the fact that he allowed this to go on for so long is egregious, and it shows that he lied to us. Now, I'm thankful to President Obama that he did choose to pardon Chelsea Manning, But I feel as though she should be reimbursed for the time that she spent, like she should be rewarded compensation for how she was treated. We tortured an American citizen. We tortured a whistleblower. If you deprive someone of sleep, if you don't give them their glasses, if you don't allow them to exercise, is that not cruel and unusual punishment? Like if that isn't, then I don't know what is. So if our government is not transparent, sometimes it takes the acts of courageous individuals like Chelsea Manning to let us know exactly what they're doing. And sometimes they're committing war crimes uh, and we need to know about it and find out about it. But I just wanted to really inform people about the Chelsea Manning case and why it's so important that her sentence was commuted because she's a hero. Well, that's all I got for you guys. I want to thank you all for tuning in so loyally each week. And I want to send a special shout out to the members of the Progressive Independent Media Revolution anyone who's a member on humanistreport.com, anyone who signed up to be a patron on Patreon, and anyone who sent us a donation through PayPal. You guys help us not only to survive, but also to thrive and expand. Uh, And I've got big plans for the show. I keep saying this, but it's actually in the works. So thank you all so much. I'll see you next week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Have a good day.